0: To invite you to open to our texts, plural, this morning. We have two of them. We're going to start with Romans 15 13, which is going to be sort of, uh, I guess, our pillar text throughout this uh, Advent season. We'll look at that each week. And then Isaiah chapter 11. Romans 15 is on page 922 of your Pew Bibles, Isaiah 11 is on page 562. So if you could find your way to both of those. And we are uh, starting a new sermon series uh, this week, uh, looking, like Barb said, at the four historic Christian values of Advent, and we'll get into those in just a little bit. I do just want to say, and I meant to say this last week, um, thank you. Anytime a pastor forces a church to sit through 10 weeks talking about faith and politics, uh, I think that church deserves a thank you. But I especially want to thank you because um, this community did did that exceptionally well. I was quite nervous about certain aspects of that series and yet uh, there was nothing but graciousness, encouragement, uh, in response. We were able to continue a lot of our discussions on Sunday night uh, and go a little deeper, and I just really appreciate the way that this congregation engaged with that. And I was really looking forward to Advent because I thought, finally, we can leave politics behind, and then I realized Advent is all about waiting for our king. So we're still gonna be, I guess, political in a sense. (laughs) Just maybe not the same way. Romans 15, verse 13, then we'll flip to Isaiah 11. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the prophet Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 writes this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of and of might the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice He will make decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will stick his hand into the viper's nest. But they will not harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, like we said, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And the season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting on the Lord, a season of waiting for Christ our Savior, a season of waiting for all that God will do as he works to redeem and restore his world. That waiting in Advent has at least two parts. First, in Advent, we as God's church commemorate the waiting that God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, did for centuries as they waited for their Savior to come. Now, as Christians, we obviously believe that that waiting has been fulfilled because on Christmas with the birth of Jesus Christ, we believe that Israel's waiting came to an end. And yet we commemorate that waiting and live into it ourselves during the season of Advent. But our waiting during Advent is more than just commemorative. That's because while the Israelites waited for Jesus' first coming, we wait for his second. As Christians, we wait for Christ to come back. We wait for him to come again. We wait for him to fully and finally bring to completion everything he started when he was first here. And so that's the second part of our waiting in Advent. Advent points us backwards to Christmas, and we commemorate that, yes, but it also points us ahead. It points us to what's still to come. It points us to Christ's return. As such, then, Advent is a season that forms uh, a couple of values or qualities in us as Christian believers. Historically, the church has recognized four of them. In no particular order, they are hope, love, joy, and peace. Those are the qualities or virtues that the waiting of Advent cultivates within us as Christian believers hope, love, joy, and peace. And so very simply, that's what we're going to talk about this Advent season. We're going to talk about those four historic Christian values, hope, love, joy, and peace, and how it is that Advent forms us as people waiting for our Savior into people of hope, love, joy, and peace. And so we start things this morning with that first one. We start with hope. Now, it's important uh, at the start here to recognize that the way that the Bible and the way that we as Christians talk about hope is very different from how our culture and our world today talks about hope. You see, when we use that word hope these days, we say things like, I hope we have mac and cheese for dinner, right? And what we really mean is that we have a wish, or a desire, or a preference. I wish that we would have mac and cheese. I would like to have mac and cheese. My preference or desire is that we have mac and cheese, but I'll probably be okay if we don't. That's how we use that word hope, to express a wish or a desire for something, but we will be okay if it doesn't end up happening. That's what hope means these days, a preference, a desire. But the Bible's definition of hope is quite a bit different. That's because the Bible doesn't talk about hope as something we desire or wish for or something that we would simply like to have. Instead, the Bible talks about hope as something more, something deeper, something much more certain and firm. That's because the Bible defines hope as something we know deep down inside without a shadow of a doubt will happen. I spent all morning trying to think of an example for this and it finally came to me during the open, opening worship song. So if you ever wonder what a pastor's thinking about while the rest of you are singing, this is kind of it, okay? It's kind of like yesterday, right? The rest of the country looked at a certain football game yesterday and thought, we know the outcome. We know what's gonna happen in Ohio. We know that the number two team is going to obliterate the number three team. But everyone in this state had a hope, a certain firm understanding of what would instead happen in Ohio, which is that Michigan would win. And that came true, right? That's, that gets applause. That gets applause. Oh, wow. I mean, I was trying to build some chips back up after the last 10 weeks, but I certainly didn't think I'd get applause to that. At least in a CRC congregation, okay? But that's biblical hope. It's not just a wish or a desire. It's something that deep down inside you know is going to happen. You know it's going to come true. That's the biblical definition of hope. That's how the Bible talks about hope. It's something that we are sure will happen, something we are sure will come to pass, something that we are sure we know how it will turn out and what will come about. And so as a result, that's the kind of hope our passage this morning is talking about, too. It's talking about biblical hope. Now, the context here is important. Uh, Isaiah is, to be honest, it's kind of an interesting book, and get used to it, because we're going to use it uh, throughout this series. Um, But Isaiah begins this book, at least the first uh, half of it, the first 39 chapters, by just sort of ping-ponging back and forth between judgment and comfort. That's the whole first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Judgment and comfort, judgment and comfort, judgment and comfort. Just swinging back and forth between those two. For instance, right at the start of the book, in Isaiah 1-1, Isaiah writes, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then he gets right into it. Because there in verse two, he says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and have turned their backs on him. That's pretty much what the rest of chapter one is like. It's all judgment and woe, guilt and shame, sin and sadness, with God trying to convict his people, Israel and Judah, of their waywardness and their rebellion against him. Chapter two, though, opens on a note of hope. Isaiah writes, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." So there's the comfort, right? Isaiah one starts with judgment. Isaiah two gives us a vision of renewal, a vision of restoration, a vision of the kind of redemption that God will bring about. Then in verse six, right after that, it's right back to the judgment. And that's how this book goes, judgment and comfort, judgment and comfort, judgment and comfort, back and forth for 39 chapters. That's the prophetic roller coaster, up, down, up, down, up, down, of Isaiah. So with that in mind, and having just read Isaiah 11 and the comfort and hope there, you want to guess what Isaiah chapter 10 is about? It's about judgment. Now, Isaiah 10 is actually kind of an interesting chapter, and I won't spend too much time on this, but I think we do need to understand a bit of it to catch the vision of, of chapter 11. That's because Isaiah 10, like the chapters before it, judges God's people. It, it talks about judgment for Israel and Judah. But unlike some of the other chapters before it, it also throws in one of their neighbors, too. It puts another nation in the crosshairs as well. It actually judges one of Israel and Judah's military opponents That's because it judges the Assyrian Empire. And what's interesting about that, and Isaiah makes this clear throughout his book, is that Assyria is actually the country that God is using to judge Israel and Judah. Right towards the end of chapter 7, Isaiah writes, In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta and Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices on the rocks and on the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. And in that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates, the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head. In other words, what Isaiah is saying there is that Assyria is the tool the means, the method that God is using to judge his people, Israel and Judah. And yet here in chapter 10, he goes after them too. In chapter 10, verse 6, Isaiah writes, I will send him, that's Assyria, against a godless nation... I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So again, what Isaiah is saying there is that God is using Assyria to bring judgment on his people. But right after that, Isaiah continues, but this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy to put an end to many nations. And a little later, Isaiah says, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is yes, God is using our enemies. God is using Assyria to punish us as his people. But Assyria is taking it too far. They're becoming arrogant. They're becoming proud. They're starting to think they can do whatever they want. And so God is going to bring his judgment against them too. And so that's the picture that we get in the chapter just before Isaiah 11. That's the picture we get in Isaiah 10. It's a picture of mutually assured destruction. God is using the Assyrians, and even though they're not mentioned here, the Babylonians too, to bring judgment on his people for their sin and waywardness. And yet eventually, the punishers are going to get punished as well. The image that Isaiah actually uses here is of a forest getting chopped down. It's almost like Assyria comes and they chop down Israel and Judah, but then they themselves are going to get chopped too. That's the message of Isaiah 10. Everyone is sinful and everyone is going to get judged. God's people, those he uses to judge his people, and everyone else too. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann sums it up in his commentary this way. He says, The conclusion of chapter 10 leaves the listener gasping. The axe chops and the lofty are brought low. Things will come to a sorry state of judgment. And so that's the context here. And yet right in the midst of that, right in the midst of that judgment, is precisely the place that hope suddenly sprouts Brueggemann writes, but then follows chapter 11 with all its inexplicable announcement that Yahweh will work a newness out beyond the dismal state of chapter 10. The tradition of Isaiah never ceases to be astonished at the newness and never fails to summon God's people to hope and expectation in the face of discouraging circumstance. And that's exactly right. Because after all the back and forth judgments of the previous 10 chapters, and immediately after the mutually assured judgment of chapter 10, we get the hope of Isaiah 11. Again, Brueggemann says, This familiar and eloquent passage of promise begins with a stump, a terminated plant from which nothing can grow. The context is a deep failure of the Davidic dynasty, Judah's kings, the one that had carried the hopes of Judah. Judah. But now in the face of that spent hope, the poet asserts a new generativity, new life with a sprout, unnamed and unidentified, but a faint sign of life, growth, and possibility. The promissory oracle thus articulates the coming of a new royal figure in time, to come who will positively enact all that is best in royal power, all that the Davidic kings heretofore failed to accomplish." In other words, what God is saying here is, yes, I have judged you as my people because you have been sinful, you have rebelled against me, you have not been who you're supposed to be, but I am not yet done with you. That's the message God is giving to his people Israel and Judah. They still belong to him, and he is still going to work in and through them to achieve his purposes in the world. That's what Isaiah 11 is about. It's about God's faithfulness, his commitment, and his determined desire to redeem and renew his people. And so the question becomes, how? How is God going to do that? And the answer that he gives here in Isaiah 11 is through a king. He's going to give his people a king. That's at the beginning of our passage, verse 1 is saying, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Just so we're all on the same page here, Jesse was the father of King David, who was the most famous king in Israel's history, right? And so when Isaiah says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, what he's basically saying is that there will be another king like David who will come. That's the promise here. Now, if you know Old Testament history, though, you might be thinking, well, there's actually been a lot of kings like David, especially in Judah, because all of their kings came from David's line. They were all descendants of David. So why is this one set apart? Why is this one different? Why is this one suddenly the hope and solution to all the problems that we've been experiencing for so long? Because, Isaiah says, this one is going to be faithful he writes, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he will obey the Lord. He will know the Lord. He will follow the Lord in a way that none of those other kings have. Where their other kings led them astray, this king will be different. This king will succeed where the others failed. This king will be wise and understanding. He'll be faithful and committed. He will know and fear the Lord. And as a result, he will lead God's people to do the same so that they know and are faithful to the Lord as well. That's the kind of king Isaiah is saying will come. And because of that, he'll also be a king of justice and of fairness. Isaiah says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. In other words, this coming king is going to be everything that Israel has always longed for. Unlike the other kings they've had who led them astray, this king will be a godly, just ruler. He will lead Israel and Judah in the way they should go, lead them in the way of the Lord, lead them out of exile, and most importantly, lead them to become the kind of people who can have a relationship with God again. That's the hope here. That's the solution that Isaiah sees to Israel and Judah's sin and waywardness. That's the vision he offers them for how God is going to bring them out of their brokenness and misery to make them his people again. Isaiah says God will give them a king like himself. And so that's the hope that the Jewish people held on to for centuries. Not our kind of hope biblical hope, knowing that someday it would happen, someday it would come true. And that's actually our hope, too. That's because in the second half of this passage, Isaiah takes that vision of hope for Israel and Judah, and he expands it. He broadens it. He makes it everyone else's hope, too. In verses 6 through 10, he writes, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Put simply, what Isaiah is saying there is that this king that he's talking about here in Isaiah 11, promised and long expected, is going to do more than simply restore Israel and Judah. He's going to do more than just renew their relationship with God. He's going to do more than just redeem them and bring them back from their exile. Instead, the redemption, renewal, and restoration that God is going to work through this king is much bigger than that. It's cosmic in scale, actually. It's universal in scope. That's because what God is promising here in this coming king in Isaiah 11 is nothing less than the full reversal of the curse of sin. That's what we see here, right? Isaiah says that wolves will live with lambs, leopards will lie down with goats, calves and lions and yearlings will go together and a little child will lead them. Cows will feed with bears, lions will eat straw like the ox, and infants and children will play near the dens of snakes and nothing will harm them. What does that sound like? When's the last time we've seen that? Before the fall into sin, right? That's what Isaiah is saying here. Someday, somehow, when this promised king eventually comes, it's not just Israel and Judah that's going to get restored. It's all of creation sin and all its effects will be undone. Everything that's gone wrong in this world is going to be reversed. God's entire creation will be rewound to what it looked like before we rebelled against him. That, Isaiah says, is what this coming king will do. That's what he'll accomplish. That's what he'll achieve and make possible. It will be nothing short of the redemption and restoration of everything God has made. That's the hope God's people, Israel and Judah, held to. In the midst of their judgment, punishment and exile, they longed for a king who could come and set things right, come and renew them, come and restore them, come and redeem them so they could be God's people once again. And that's the hope we hold to as well. We long for a king who can come and set things right, come and renew us, come and make this world the way it's supposed to be again. And my friends, we have that king. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is our hope. Which brings us to the gospel this morning. I'll be honest, there are times when I despair of that hope. Right? We look around this world and we see things that make that hope seem quaint, unrealistic, quite frankly, unbelievable. You know, the war in Ukraine, for instance, or the migrant crisis where thousands are striving for a better life and dying on the way. The worship wars and culture wars and political wars, both inside and outside the church, and countless other small-scale and large-scale catastrophes in our lives and in this world. And in those moments, it's easy for us to place our hope elsewhere and political parties for instance in and up and coming leaders and new technologies and fame and fortune and security and safety whatever it is there are a thousand options out there for us to hope in that seem more reasonable realistic and capable of doing what we need and when they fail as they always do it makes us feel even more hopeless which is why we keep coming back to this hope The hope of the gospel because if there is actually a hope out there that can touch the waywardness of this world it's this one it's the gospel when we throw our hands up in the air and say what could possibly fix this world it's this it's the gospel When we say, what could ever change things the way that they need to be changed? We have the answer. It's the gospel. And when we wonder endlessly who could actually bring about the kind of restoration and redemption this world needs, we know his name. It's Jesus Christ. He is the shoot of Jesse's stump. He is the coming king who came. He is the one who, through his life, death, and resurrection, set in motion the wheels of God's redemption. And though he left and ascended back to heaven, we hope that one day he will come again. Not hope like we hope, but biblical hope. It's like we say when we have communion together, right? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will what? Come again. That's the hope we hold to this Advent season. It's not a hope we merely wish for or would like to have happen. Instead, it is a hope we know, a hope we are sure about, a hope in which we can rest secure because it's the hope we hold in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, to us, from our perspective, this world so often looks hopeless and we from our perspective too often look hopeless but you are a god of hope not a wish not a desire not something we would just like not just a preference you are a god of certain hope sure hope secure hope and that is the hope you have given us in jesus christ Help us to trust that hope this Advent season and always as we wait for your Son to come back and bring everything that.